God of life slain by death. Um, and if I have not met you yet, my name is Ross. I serve here as one of the pastor elders, family pastor. And I'm excited because we're um, in week three, as Jesse, Jesse said, of, of a five-part uh, sermon series this, this month or so. Uh, where we're looking at what it means for the, the family of God to, to gather, okay? okay? And we've, uh, what we're, we're saying is that what we need uh, more than anything else is we need to be transformed by the story, by the narrative, by the plot line of the gospel. And we need, as a family, to come place ourselves into that story each, each week. And so, um, so this week we're continuing on that story. We began last week with... Uh, God. God creates. He is the initiator. Uh, he's the king. Uh, he creates. And then now this week uh, we respond. We look at our, ourselves. Uh, as the old uh, Puritans used to say, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. So as we look to the garden and the, and the fall with Adam and Eve, uh, we look also at ourselves. And so that's what we're going to be uh, looking at this morning. Uh, before we get into that, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll jump in. All right. Father, you're good and you're gracious king. Uh, You uh, look at us, uh, men and women, broken, weary by our sin. God, we're tired of our sin. And 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 you look at us and you give the grace that we desperately need. So, Lord, over the next uh, little while, as we look at your word, would you, by the power of your spirit, apply that grace to the darkest, uh, unreached corners of our own hearts so that even as we sit, uh, you you might change us by the power of your spirit. And so we commit this time to you. Would you be pleased and glorified with, uh, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know what that means. Maybe if I... Is it worth uh, me closing down and starting everything back over? Or... <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Let me... Uh... Huh. Okay. Okay. 30 seconds. He's... Uh... He's a rock star and an IT uh, wizard. If, uh, so. if you stand up. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Greet somebody. Go ahead. Just stand up. Say hi to somebody. We'll be back in 30 seconds. Yeah, I tried toggling it in the back and it didn't seem to make a difference. So maybe do a restart? How long is that? Is it uh, pretty slow? No, it's not slow. I just. Even a fast. Hey, everybody. Right, I'm plugging it. I know, that's what I was thinking. Do you think I'm plugged? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, there we go. Good improv, man. (laughs) Justin in the house. Oh, you lost the signal. Okay, so you're trying to... Try Here we go. Yeah, I'm trying to do it like... You presenter mode? Yeah, let me uh, go to... Looks like it works. Oh, did it? Looks like it works. Oh, okay. Might just need to toggle over... Do you guys usually do like where this screen looks exactly like that screen? No, I'm... I... Uh, okay. 
So you expand over to the other side. There we go. Sweet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. You're oh, that's not. Uh, that's your, that's last week. I say who's good. 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 I say all the. Y'all say time. All the. Got it. Cool. Okay. That's going to work for us. Okay. Yeah. Magic. Magic. We had to call in the first responders here. Okay. Cool. All righty. So, uh, let, did, I, did I already pray? Yeah. I already prayed. Okay. Well, we, we would hate to do that again. So, uh, let's, go to the next, uh, let's go to the next point. So. All right. Uh, okay. So we said uh, we're we're looking at this this series transformed uh, by the by the storyteller. Um, and uh, I want to start us off with a question. Okay. What do you do when you're not feeling it? Right. Anybody else relate to this cat? Like every anybody wake up and you're just just not feeling it in the morning. Now uh, we can uh, have this feeling in all sorts of areas of our life. What if you're not feeling it in your work? You like you wake up. I do not want to go to work today. You wake up. Uh, you're not feeling it in your marriage. Uh, you're not feeling it in uh, your relationship. Uh, with Jesus. We, we know what it's like, I think, to feel uh, nothing and to, to feel kind of that blah, apathetic, not into it this morning, right? And uh, maybe you felt that this morning, right? You, you woke up, your alarm went off, you're like, oh my goodness, I have to go, to go to church, I have to go listen to some songs, to listen to a guy talk for way too long, figure out his PowerPoint for way too long. You had to, you had to go, uh, you, you, you woke up not uh, not feeling it. What do we do? How, how or why should we, should we worship God? Should we be with uh, God's people when we just don't simply have the genuine, authentic desire to do so? And this is a really important, important question because uh, there's really kind of two ways that we could answer this question. Our, our culture uh, gives us one answer. When we are uh, 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 when uh, the first answer comes from our culture, uh, and authentic, authenticity is one of our culture's highest good. We live in a in a unique period of human history that places a huge premium on being genuine and authentic in all that we do. So if you Google it, you'll actually find that there's extensive lists on the internet of what things that you can do to become an authentic, genuine person to make sure you're always feeling it, to make sure your emotions are always uh, right, and that which even just a, a that a Google search like that feels a little bit uh, inauthentic. So, but on the other hand, uh, this and this can we can come run into a problem with this because uh, the our culture's answer to the to the question, what do we do when we're not feeling it, is simply this. Our culture's answer is disengage. So if we're not feeling it, if we're not into it, what do we do? We back off. Uh, we we disengage because we we tell ourselves if we do something and we're not feeling it. We're not, if the right emotions are not, if we, are not associated with the thing that we're doing, then we're being hypocritical. We're being inauthentic. We're just going through the motions, which is one of our culture's uh, biggest evils. And we hold this value in pretty much every area of life. It's pretty common. Today we see it all the time for couples to get married. Uh, and all throughout the dating, uh, dating uh, period, they are passionately in love. They're head over heels uh, in love for one another all the way up through the honeymoon. And then, uh, uh, but over the course of, uh, of a few years, they start to be, turn into this couple. Affection wanes. People fall out of love. And once they stop feeling it, we start to play mind games. It becomes very easy for us to justify separating or justify being unfaithful or, or us to justify little things that move us away from our spouses simply because 
uh, the heat's not there anymore. And we can certainly uh, love uh, in the same way our relationship with Jesus or the, uh, or the people of God, right? We can see that the same kind of shallowness in our spiritual lives. We have the idea that reading our Bibles or praying or going to church only makes God happy or is only worth it or is only real if if we're really excited about it or if we really want to. And we're very sophisticated about this. We rationalize very well with ourselves. We, we say, well, um, if I wake up and I'm not super passionate about praying or reading my Bible or going to church, uh, then, uh, then I just shouldn't do it. Like, that would be inauthentic. That, would, that wouldn't be genuine. But, of course, what inevitably happens when we follow that train of logic? Well, we find that the more we avoid those spiritual disciplines, uh, the less we feel like doing them. So we go for months or sometimes years without healthy, regular patterns. We're like a husband who stops loving his wife uh, simply because he stops feeling it. But at the same time, uh, the, that's, as the culture gives us that answer, the gospel gives us another, another answer. Rather than, uh, rather than disengage, the gospel tells us to press in. The gospel tells us to deal with the problem of our inauthenticity, our apathy, our, our lack of right emotions, by pressing in, rather than disengage, instead of pulling away, instead of avoiding the hard things in life, being a follower of Jesus means that we run harder after the practices and the habits and the disciplines that we know we were made for. And this is important, especially when we don't want to do them. Especially when we don't want to do them. So instead of our emotions driving our actions, uh, our actions and, and, and habits, our, our habits lead our emotions or affections. So here's like just a little example. My son, who's three, he'll tell me all the time when I tell him to do something that, you need, that he needs to obey, you know, pick up, your, pick up your toys or share with your brother or something like that, he'll say all the time, I don't want to, I don't want to. Like he, he just knows, like he's very in tune with his feelings, right? Uh, I don't want to do that. I do not like to do that. And I, and I tell him, I've had to, to like break down and like he doesn't, he doesn't understand why does he have to do things that he doesn't want to do. And, he, and, and I said, well, th- that's the whole point of obedience, right? Like that, it's only a good, it's only uh, it's only obedience if we're doing it when we don't want to do it, right? If I tell my son to eat ice cream, like he's that's not obedience. That's just him doing, getting to do what he wants to do, right? Uh, so it only matters to obey when we actually don't want to do that thing, right? Uh, so uh, and oh, um, and so this is so Jared Kennedy, who's a, a pastor, he uh, a family pastor, he says this. He says our habits lead our affections. Our habits lead our affections. So another example from marriage. When I feel, anybody else ever feel distance or tension in their marriage before, right? No. Uh, yeah, so just, just, yeah. So, um, um, yeah, so uh, we, we, this happens all the time, and, I, and I've, I've realized, here's what I want to do. When, when I, when I, right after I have an argument with Monica, or there's some kind of, just like this gray thing that I, that I don't want to, that, that, that's, that's, that's causing a block in our marriage, uh, what's the easy thing for me to do? Well, d- disengage, to back away, to move, sometimes literally just to go into another room, right? I don't, I don't want to, uh, I don't, uh, we, we want to move away from conflict, right? Uh, and, and we move away from our spouses, right? But what I found over the course of, of being married for several years is that actually, as hard as it is, in the midst of tension, in the midst of conflict, in the midst of when we don't want to do those things, Actually, there's better life and better joy by moving toward our spouses, by moving toward the people that we don't. So even if it's, I don't even know what to say. I don't know what's the problem in our marriage. I don't know what, 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 what it is. I just say, I don't like the way things are. I messed up. You messed up. Let's get it out in the open and think about it okay, and talk about it. 
right? I just want to think about it. She wants to talk about it, right? So, um, so that's, what we, that's what we do, okay? You move toward your spouse. You, you, you move toward. And so, uh, so even when we don't want to, we move toward. And, and what happens is it's not just like, oh, well, if you have a happy li- a wife, you're going to have a happy life. It's not like just like our lives get better or we, we start being happier more in our marriage. Actually, what happens as we move toward our spouses when we don't want to, what happens is that I found that my affection for, my love for, my desire for Monica actually grows through those experiences. Whereas if I pull away from Monica, what happens is my love for her, even though I may want to want to love her, my love for her grows cold and, and, and it repeats the cycle of, 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 of distance and coldness and tension, right? Whereas if, I, if we do, if we lead, we let our habits, our disciplines lead and our affections will follow, our affections grow. So that's, what we're, that's, what we're, uh, and that's part of what we're doing during this five-week series, is we're looking at the habits that we as a family, the disciplines, the practices, the rhythms that we as a family of God have to lead our affections to where we know they ought to be in greater love, delight, and joy, and satisfaction in Jesus. Okay, so we, we, we began last week with part one of the story. We said this is, it's a story of God. It's a story about God. And part one of that story is that God creates, uh, that he is the creator and the father of all things, and he made us to enjoy him. That's the, that's the whole point. Yet, number two, with Adam and Eve, we fell from this great height. And so since Genesis 3... God has, been, uh, God has been executing part three of this story, uh, redemption through Jesus, and that, which will ultimately culminate in the consummation in part four, when Jesus returns and establishes a renewed heaven and earth, and all of what we broke by our, sin, our rebellion is set right. So what we need, what we're saying, that is what we need as a family of God, as a, as a people, as one local expression of the body of Christ, we need not an emotional experience. We don't need inspiration once a week, one out of every seven days to come, hear, hear some great songs and listen to an inspiring sermon. We don't, we don't need an emotional experience. What we need is to be transformed by the storyteller himself. We need to place ourselves into the story of his glorious grace so that our hearts can be not... Uh, not, cha- or not, uh, not modified, but totally remade. So that the stony, the dead parts of our hearts that are drinking from the empty Gospels that you and I drink from throughout the week can be chiseled away by the hammer of God's mercy. And so that, our, as Paul says in Romans 12, that, so that we can be transformed by the renewal, by the remaking, by the reorientation, recalibration of our minds, Right? And so that's what we need. So oftentimes we think it's really easy to think of, of, of Sunday morning, a worship gathering as like, uh, you know, uh, it's something that, that pours gasoline on, on, the, on the, the, the flame of our faith. So, we, uh, so all week long, this fire that's within us of believing in Jesus is going down. And by, the, by Saturday night, I mean, it's basically just coals and embers, right? And what we need is just somebody to dump a gallon of gasoline on it and boom, we have this great emotional, intense experience that, that, that inspires us to, to go and live out the next week, but by the, by, by the, through the course of the week, it's just down to coals and embers, right? And so we can have that, that view of, of Sunday morning, but really, I, I think that's really unhelpful for us to think about. Instead, instead, it's better for us to think about it, I think, as ourselves being like worn-out, weary, damaged pieces, metal tools that are being placed in, that are placing ourselves in the furnace of the gospel to be totally remade, to be totally reformed each week. Each week as God strikes the hammer of grace against our, 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 our hearts, uh, we, we're, we're formed by that gospel. And so that's what we're doing. I think that's a help, better, helpful picture of what we're doing uh, as, as a family of God. Okay? We need to be repaired and replenished in the, st- 
restoring fire of the gospel. And so uh, what we're doing, as Jesse said earlier in the service, what we're focusing on particularly is the act of corporate confession. That it's corporate, not like suit and tie business or whatever, but corporate like public congregation, like what we do as a family, confessing our sin uh, to God. And, and I think in particular, this one act, this one aspect of our worship can, can be one of the harder ones for us to wrap our minds around because it feels, for our culture, it feels the least authentic or the least genuine. Oftentimes it'll be, we're reading a prayer or something like we read this morning. It's like, well, that's not my words. That's, that's, or, or, whatever. or maybe an elder is praying and he's confessing, uh, or, you know, using a prayer that he wrote himself. And, or we read, even if we read a passage of scripture, it's, we're reading a passage of scripture that's not our own words. It doesn't describe us individually. So we think, uh, you know, this, we, we, we chafe against that a little bit. But what I want us to see this morning is that publicly confessing sin together is one of actually the most authentic acts of worship that we can perform as a family. Confessing sin is one of the most authentic acts of worship that we can perform as a family. And so here's the big idea that I want us to see this morning that we're going to unpack. Uh, counterintuitively, by stepping down into the furnace of corporate confession, God ushers us into the true worship we were designed for. By stepping down, we'll see that confession is an act of lowering ourselves, into the furnace of corporate confession, and God ushers us into the true worship we were made for. Okay? So we're going to see this in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to draw out three quick principles from Luke chapter 18, uh, a parable. That, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. And uh, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14, the words will also be on, on the screen behind me. And the first point that we're going to see from Luke chapter 8, from this parable of Jesus, is that corporate confession strikes a blow against hypocrisy. Corporate confession strikes a blow against hypocrisy. So, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Sounds like the start of every good Jewish joke. Uh, one, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, ad- adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, so two guys enter into the temple, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, it's important here to remember the context. The temple is a very public place. So it's where the people of God gather to worship him, to, to enjoy and experience his presence. But there's a lot of people around. Obviously, the tax collector and the Pharisee, they see each other. They know, what, they, they know, what, they know what's happening, right? And, and, um, and there would have been a, people all around to hear their prayers. But, uh, but what a contrast between these two prayers, right? On the one hand, you have public pride, the this, this self-righteous Pharisee. Now, in, on the, on, in, in our culture, it's, we're trained to, like, Oh, once we read about the Pharisee, we hate this guy, like because we just are trained to hate Pharisees, to hate hypocrisy, to hate self-righteousness, right? It's the it's that's the chief evil, the one unforgivable sin in, in our culture is hypocrisy, right? Uh, but uh, but the thing is, uh, hating hypocrisy is kind of like trying to grab onto like a greased watermelon or something. Uh, once you once you feel like you've got a handle on it, like you appropriately have the 
hatred for hypocrisy that you should have, you realize that uh, you don't have it anymore, right? As soon as you hate hypocrites, you start to sound an awful lot like a hypocrite, right? And, and we, we get that. We, that's just part of who we are. So what, what, uh, what's, um, what's really hard, though, is, uh, so for all of our talk in our culture about being real and being authentic and being genuine, uh, we, we ought to be a lot more concerned that our outward hatred for hypocrisy has become a cover for our internal sin, right? You see, Jesus, and, and because here's the whole point of this, of this parable, is not Jesus telling us we need to hate hypocrites. The whole point of this passage is to actually do something positively, to, to be like someone else and not the, not the Pharisee, to be like the tax collector. Jesus wants to, us to adopt the posture of the tax collector who cries out, God, have mercy on me. So here's the thing. We may trumpet, or you may all, all, be all about authenticity and teaching your kids to be real and be true to themselves and how, how we need to be real, but, but uh, if we're not regularly confessing our sin publicly, then chances are we're, not, we're allowing ourselves to be deceived by our own self-righteousness. I'm going to say that again. If, you're, if we are not regularly confessing our sins in public, then chances are we are allowing ourselves to be deceived by our self-righteousness. So let me ask you, how are you doing in this? Are you authentic enough to come to Sunday morning uh, uh, worship, to, to be with the people of God, uh, and, and confess sin publicly? And I have to admit, this is a, this is a definite struggle for me as a pastor and, and, and as a staff member of a, of a church, right? I can... I can oftentimes rely on my outward, like my job description and what I do to kind of make me feel comfortable in my standing before God, right? I would never articulate it like the, like the Pharisee, but inside I use my job as an excuse not to examine the dark places of my heart. Uh, but there is nothing that cuts against my drive towards self-exaltation like confessing my sin and failure in the presence of others. So what does this mean for our weekly gatherings? Well, it means that when we gather as a family, we gather as a room full of men and women, just like the tax collector. We gather saying, God, have mercy on us because we are sinners. And there are a lot of ways that we might do this. We might, as we, as we did uh, this morning, we might recite a prayer of confession together. We might read a passage of Scripture that leads us into confession. We might sing a, a, a song that confesses our need for God. Or we might pray silently uh, in our seats. And when we do this, what we're doing in a room full of people, looking out of the corner of our eyes, seeing a room full of people confess the same thing together, uh, what we're doing is that we're reminding and rehearsing this truth over our souls, that I am no better than anyone else. That uh, no matter how much we don't want to believe it, no matter how much we want to put on a, a, the show of righteousness, we are insufficient, incompetent, and completely lacking of any good thing to save ourselves. And so is every single other person in this room. And so, and as we're about to see, that's actually a really, really good thing. Okay? So, corporate confession uh, strikes a blow against hypocrisy. Secondly, corporate confession lifts us up by lowering us. Corporate confession lifts us up by lowering us. So, uh, let's go back to to the parable. Uh, Look at the last couple verses. Um, uh, and, And we'll see kind of the point that Jesus wants us to grab out of this parable. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this is Jesus, this is Jesus now talking. This is his summary, what he wants you to take away from this. 
this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Did you catch that? So there's a threat there a little bit, uh, but there's also a promise, right? The one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, if we're honest, that kind of sounds strange to us. Anybody wake up this morning and like, hey, I'm super pumped to go to church because Jesus is going to exalt me this morning, right? Anybody, anybody think that to themselves? Like, no, that's, uh, that's not really what we, uh, what, we, what we think of. But here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not appealing to the narcissist within you here. He, what he is doing is he, he's simply saying that only by humbling yourself, only by confessing your sin publicly like this tax collector, will you be able to live the way that you were truly designed to live. And, so, and here's what I mean. Uh, only, by con- only by confessing your sin publicly will you be able to live the way that you were designed to live and uh and um this really goes all the way back to creation how did god design and intend us to live well he made us in his image he gave us dignity and worth of of bearing his image and and this to representing his reign as kings and queens uh, multiplying his image across the world so this is how the psalmist Looking back, thousands of years later, looking back on, on creation, this is what he says. What is human, a human being that you re- remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen as well as the, the animals in the wild, the, the birds of the, of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the, the currents of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name through all, throughout all the earth. Now, you probably didn't wake up saying, like, I'm so glad I'm higher than the oxen or sheep or whatever. But, but see the point here. Like, notice the language here. Like, this is royal, regal language that God is speaking over, over each one of us, over all of his, his creation. What he's saying is that, and so, what, um, so when Jesus says that those who humble themselves will be exalted, what he's doing is saying, he's saying, he's highlighting the par- paradox of the gospel. And what he's saying is that the path to full glorious, exalted, joyous life that you were intended comes in a completely counterintuitive way. Only when we lower ourselves by owning our sin before God and others will Jesus raise us up to the new, free, and the glorious life that he offers, that he promises you. So, the problem is, though, uh, that when, our, uh, when we hide our sin, or when we ignore our sin, or when we downplay our sin, or blame shift our sin, or sugarcoat our sin... Uh, we think what we're doing is protecting ourselves. We think that we're preserving ourselves from the pain of being exposed as a dirty failure. But in reality, the more we hide, the more we downplay, the more we sugarcoat, and the more we blame shift, the more we ignore, the deeper and deeper we descend into misery and slavery. And I've certainly found this to be the case in my life. The, uh, even just the, the exact opposite of this I found. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was... Uh, in, in, a, in a small group of guys, and what, uh, each one of us were, uh, were taking time to, to share part of our, our, our story of how we came to know and trust Jesus and follow him. And I was amazed to the T, every single per, to, a, to a man, every single person in that circle said that a major transi- shifting point, a major transition in their life and in their following Jesus came when they were able to publicly acknowledge and confess their darkest failures and sins uh, to other people, Right? Just the act of confessing, just getting the words out in the air for others to hear brought a depth of freedom and intimacy with Jesus that wasn't possible otherwise. So do you see what Jesus is promising you in this passage? And do you see what he's promising our whole family as we gather? 
as we place ourselves into the story of the gospel and lower ourselves in the eyes of God by confessing our sin, as we do that, and only as we do this, God, like a tender father, he, he transforms us, he changes us, he lifts us up to the freedom and the beauty that he intends for us. So, we might be tempted to ask people, how? Like, how does God, like, how, does low, how, do we, how are we lifted up to the life that we were meant to live by lowering? How does this happen? The answer is that when we take steps downward into humility, we bind ourselves to the very path of Jesus himself. When we take steps downward, lowering ourselves like this tax collector, into humility and confession, what we're doing is we're, we're following the trajectory of Jesus' life himself. Paul says this in Philippians 2. He actually uses the exact same words, humility and exaltation, the same words that are used in Luke. Paul uses in Philippians 2. He says this about Jesus. Jesus humbled himself, same word, by, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him. That's the same word as in Luke 18. And gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. You see what's happening here? Jesus is inviting us downward into death so that we can rise up with him to a new resurrected and exalted life. So I like to think of, in some, some ways, confession is kind of like skydiving, okay? Uh, so it's, it's risky. Every, anytime you do it, you're, you're taking a risk. I've never done it before, but uh, I've never skydived before. But you're taking a risk. Like you're standing at the edge, and, and oftentimes we can feel like this, this woman, just all by herself, stand, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, and then finally be given, and it feels like death, right? I'm about, I'm going, I'm falling to my death all by myself. Uh, and we can picture, I have the picture of Jesus uh, as like a drill sergeant standing at the door of the plane saying, you better jump, you better jump, you better jump, you better jump, you better confess your sin, you better confess your sin, and, and then we just, and we just do it. But, uh, and so it's easy to have a, a picture of Jesus like that in our heads. But reality, in reality, I think, thinking about confession more like uh, Jesus as the, the instructor. So even, even the guy on the bottom, I, I assume, it, like, he's not having a lot of fun at that moment, like you can tell. But, but what has the instructor done in that moment? He's strapped himself, Velcro or whatever, you know, whatever they use to strap himself, attach himself to, to, the, to the jumper, right? And that's what, that's what Jesus has done even in the act of, uh, 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 that's what Jesus has done by inviting us down, down, down into the death of confession. And this is what pastor and author Paul Miller, uh, he, he puts it this way. He, he calls it, the, this is the J-curve of the Christian life. So in the same way that Jesus died and went down, literally down into the depths of death and then rose back up into new, resurrected, glorious life, so every single person that wants to follow him has to, in a thousand little different ways throughout their life, uh, the course of their day, has to align, align themselves, link themselves to the pattern of Jesus who went down into death. So we die to ourselves. We lower ourselves into the death of confession so, with the promise that just as Jesus rose, we rose. Now, what I'm not saying is that we confess our sin because Jesus confessed his sin, right? That's actually never happened. Jesus had no sin to confess. We, we, just, we sang that line earlier um, and, and come behold the wondrous mystery, there, there's, a, there's that line. And um, we sing that. Um, um, and uh, instead, so we're not saying that Jesus sinned and so we've got to confess just like Jesus. Instead, uh, to say that would actually be missing the whole point. Instead, what I'm saying is that Je- the, the Jesus who never sinned humbled himself to the point of death by taking the consequences of our sin. 
by bearing the curse, all the effects of the fall and the punishment that, punishment that we incurred. He was treated as though he were guilty, even though it was us who were the guilty ones. Right? That's the, whole, that's the point of the gospel. Uh, this is what the, gives us the power to freely confess our sins to God as a part of his family. Because, as we prayed earlier, his, his worthiness was accepted for our unworthiness. And if that's the case, like if all the weight of, of, and the burden and the guilt of the shame of your sin has been laid entirely on Jesus, the only perfect, righteous, spotless one, if, if that's the case, then we can confess everything without being afraid of anything, Right? Uh, if, if, if God looks at Jesus and counts all of the ugliness, the brokenness, the sin, the rebellion, the, 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 uh, the shame of your sin, and he has placed it squarely on the shoulders of the son he loved, the perfect son, like, then what is it that we could say that, could ev- that, could, that would give us reason to fear or, or, or to be afraid, right? So only the gospel gives us the power to confess. And uh, so one, one pastor has said, uh, has called confession this. Confession is a joyful covenant renewal. Confession is joyful covenant renewal. That is, in confessing, confessing sin uh, is not a time to be just glum and depressed, and it's not like an excuse for religious leaders to make you feel guilty or feel bad about... about con- confessing sin is, uh, we can be sober and serious about, about sin, just like the tax collector in our story. But there are times when we confess sin almost as though we were fighting back a smile a little bit, right? Holding back the joy of the gospel we know will follow. That's why Peter, when Jesus says, uh, when Jesus says um, uh, he goes to wash uh, the disciples' feet, and Peter says, no, 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 don't wash my feet. And then Jesus says, unless, you have, uh, unless, uh, unless you're washed, uh, then you, uh, you have no part with me. What does Jesus say? Then wash all of me. In other words, he's, like, like, he's eagerly admitting, all of me is sinful, all of me is needing to be washed by you. And it's as if he's, he's fighting, back the joy, uh, fighting back joy of, of the cleansing that comes to the gospel. So, um, so uh, corporate, confession is, uh, corporate confession lifts us up by lowering us. But then finally, what we're going to see is, uh, is, is that corporate confession is the rehearsal for a daily rhythm. Corporate confession is a rehearsal for a daily rhythm. Remember that the whole point of this series, when we're talking about what it means, what worship, what it means to be to worship as a family of God, the whole point is that these uh, gatherings are like dress rehearsals. We come out of our weeks, uh, Monday through Saturday, out of being inundated with false gospels, the false narratives and stories that the, that our world throws at us, and we come into the worship gathering that is structured by the story of God who is restoring his creation that was broken by the fall through the death of Jesus. And so we come for 75 minutes so that we can be reoriented, recalibrated, restored to live out that story in the coming week. That's the whole point. So once I tore my uh, labrum, it's something in my shoulder, I think that's, that's what it's called, labrum, I was playing football, flag football, and, uh, <laughs> and I... Uh, and I, I tore my labrum, and my shoulder like hurt like crazy. I think it was, it was actually my right, my right shoulder because of my throwing arm. Um, and um, and uh, and so I went to. The, I was told I need to go to the to physical therapist, and I was like, oh sweet, the physical therapist will heal me up, make me all better, and uh, won't have any pain in my in my in my shoulder. But actually, what they did was not give me a shot or perform surgery. They laid me down on a table and gave me a bunch of exercises to do. What do they What do they do? They they give you they they demonstrate they uh, how to do exercises to help build muscles back and everything like that. And uh, but they don't actually solve the problem. They tell you, 
this is how you solve the problem, this is the rehearsal for how you solve the problem, and then you're supposed to go and take these exercises and incorporate them into your daily rhythms. And so that's a lot of like what the worship gathering uh, is like. Uh, uh, and this is actually how more I look, but um, uh, this, is a, this, is a, this is a good picture of what corporate confession is like. When we, confess, when we conf- collectively confess our sin on a Sunday morning, a big part of what we're doing is preparing for the daily task of confession. In other words, what we've said is that we want to worship both gathered and scattered. So gathered, we want to come and confess uh, together, but we also want to go out and in the everyday nooks and crannies, daily rhythms of our lives, go out confessing, acknowledging our sin. We want to move from rehearsal to, uh, to rhythms. Uh, this is how Justin broke it, broke it down last week, okay? So, uh, what I want us to do is to close by looking at three just helpful practical uh, uh, principles for growing in the act of daily repenting, daily confessing of our sin, okay? Um, so, the first thing uh, is to begin confession by thoroughly reviewing our day. Be- begin confession by thoroughly reviewing uh, your day. There's power in simply the act of re- reflecting on and running over the last 24 hours of your day in your head. Maybe it's in the evening, maybe it's in the morning, you're thinking, uh, you're, you're reviewing your day. A couple of weeks ago, Justin mentioned that the prayer of examine. You can find that on our website. And a big part of that, this prayer is simply to reflect on, to look back on the last 24 hours and think, where have things gone really well? Where have I really modeled the love of Christ? Where have I felt fully alive in my relationship with Jesus? And then on the flip side, where have I failed to reflect the love of, of Jesus? Where have I stumbled? Where have I moved away from intimacy with Jesus and love, and love for others? So the, just the power of reflection, I highly recommend that, that, that practice. Um, and I, I find this resource to be really, really, really helpful. And, um, and this is also helpful for me in re- finding reoccurring habits of sin uh, that, that keep, just keep cropping up in, in my life and identifying those blind spots, Okay. So, uh, review your day. Uh, secondly, confess both the what and the why. Confess both the what and the why. Here's what I mean. It's really easy uh, for confession to, to, to drift into like just rattling off a list of all the things that we did, right? I, God, I lied this week. I said something hurtful to my wife. I didn't read my Bible. I drank Dr. Pepper instead of Diet Dr. Pepper. I cussed at, <laughs> at someone in the car next to me, right? I... Uh, um, uh, so what we're saying is, what we're doing is we're just saying the what of what we did. Like these are the things. This is the list of the things that I messed up on today. Uh, but instead, true confession invites us and and uh, to search over, invites the Holy Spirit to search also for the why. What's the reason? What's driving the things that we do? What's the what's the why behind the what of our of our sins? So and we actually see this in the in the example of the of the of the of the tax collector who said, "God have mercy on me." Be, not because, uh, because I did this thing, I did this thing, I stole from people, but, but because I am a sinner. So he, he linked his confession to his identity as a sinner, as someone who's fallen, uh, as someone who in our identity has rebelled against, uh, against God. And so, uh, so in our confession, we don't just rattle off a list or say, oh man, I shouldn't have said that, that thing. But instead we take time to consider the root of our sinful actions. So for example, instead of saying, uh, God, I, conf- I yelled at my spouse in anger today. Uh, we, we might say, God, I yelled at my spouse because they said or did something that made me feel de- devalued or threatened or unaffirmed. And here's the key, uh, and I need those things in my marriage to be happy, right? So we're confessing our worship 
of, of those things, and we're confessing like, what, what, we're, what are our, our longings or what's driving us uh, to sin. Or instead of saying, God, I, I messed up, I looked at porn this morning, we can say, I went to pornography because I wanted an easy escape from the frustration of feeling overlooked. Right? Because there's always something that drives us. We never, we're not just bodies, like flesh and like we're, something drives our actions. Okay? So we, when we want to confess even those, even those things. Okay? So confess both the what and the why. And then finally, confess to God, both to God and others. So James 5 tells us, confess your sins to one another. And then Paul repeatedly in his letter says, bear one another's burden. Well, the biggest weight that we carry is the weight of our own sin. All right? So let's unload that weight in the presence of others. And I want to encourage you. Encourage you. I, I think there's probably a lot of us in this room for whom this is not really a regular practice. Uh, but, but I want to challenge you that if you don't have one or two or three people in your life with whom you can share the burden of sin with, with whom you can confess your failures on a regular basis, then I'm afraid that you're missing out on one of the deepest joys of the gospel. I need in my life a discipleship group, a community group, uh, people that, who I can say, I have been failing to love my wife in these specific ways. Or I have, this is a huge stumbling block in my life keeping me from growing in Jesus. Uh, otherwise, if I don't have that, here's the thing. Otherwise, I know that hypocrisy, that stagnation, that, and a disconnected relationship with Jesus is right around the corner. So what's the next step for you? Well, maybe you have one or two relationships right now. You just need to take the next step toward fighting Jesus together. There's, there's, there, you have friends uh, that, you're, that you're close with, and you, you just need to say, like, hey, I'm glad we're, we're friends, but I need you to help me fight my sin together. Can, I, can we meet together regularly, confess sin, and pray together? Or maybe you're here and you, there's not really potential relationships like that that you can think of in your, in your life. And so maybe for you the, the, uh, the, uh, the next step is to put yourself in a context where those kind of relationships can form. So maybe it's showing up to a community group or going to the next uh, women's Bible study or the women's, uh, women's bedroom. Maybe it's going to the men's retreat that's coming up in a couple weeks. Uh, and asking, as you go to those things, as you put yourself in those contexts, asking God, would you provide for me one or two relationships? I've prayed this prayer myself. Would you provide for, you one or, provide for me one or two relationships that can spur me on and help me bring my sin into the light? All right? So there's a couple of practical tips as we close that we can, that we can implement in, in, in our lives even this week. But, but even as we go, let's go in the light of His grace clinging to that paradoxical promise of the gospel that, that as we lower ourselves, as we, it feels like death, it feels like we're jumping out of an airplane. As we do that, Jesus has walked the same road. He's acquainted with our weaknesses. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, defeated all the, the, the effects of, of sin, defeated sin and Satan and the devil itself, and has, uh, and has risen from the grave, the promise is, that we, our lives will, will be marked by the same path and trajectory. So let's, uh, let's pray toward that end. Father, we, we praise you uh, uh, because your mercy is more, as we're about to sing. Uh, your mercy reaches uh, down into the depths of, of, of the brokenness of our hearts. God, we are tired of our sin. We're tired of the, of the reoccurring, the habitual patterns of sin that we just can't seem to kick. 
And we're tired of the new ones that keep cropping up, that seem like they're just cropping up every day. We confess that we are sinners, but we also rejoice knowing that, that, that our sin cannot run deeper than your grace. So we ask that you would allow us, by your grace, to know the assurance and the promise of the gospel. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.